Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Sean O'Shea to speak about his coaching career today. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Sean, I suppose like we do at the beginning of every podcast we begin, can you take us through your earliest football memory? Very good question. My earliest football memory that I really, really remember with you know great clarity is that the last ever game uh, at the old Leeds Road Stadium, Huddersfield Town versus Blackpool, uh, before we moved to the um, what was then the Alfred McAlpine Stadium, which was our new stadium in '94. So that would have been '93. I was oof, 11 years old, a long time ago. But that was my first uh, first real memory when I think back of, of a live game that I went to watch. I'm pretty sure I went to a few games before that, but I can remember that with real clarity because it was so important and such a special day of last game of that of that stadium, you know, end of an era. We'd won a couple of titles there back in the 20s and won the FA Cup and whatnot. So it was quite historical to be and memorable to be leaving that ground and moving to a new one. Um, so from a live point of view, it's that. But from a TV perspective, it's Italian 90. That's what made me fall in love with football. I was eight years old, Ireland in the World Cup. I remember the first game against England. You know, I remember um, sitting in the car I was going to an altar boys meeting believe it or not I was an altar boy at St Patrick's Church in Huddersfield when uh, Packy Bonner saved the penalties you know against uh, Columbia so that really made me fall in love with football but like I said my first live moment was that last game at the old Leeds Road Stadium. Yes and the nostalgia that gets brought off on yeah. this podcast but did you go on to enjoy a successful playing career when you were younger Sean I know that you were within your own boyhood club Huddersfield Town for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, for me, like I um, I started playing for Huddersfield when I was nine years old, so it was under 10s. And that was before academy football as it is today. So it was Huddersfield schools, like representative stuff. I remember playing, we used to play every Saturday morning, you know, shirt and tie, jumper, Huddersfield schools and whatnot. And that kind of changed then, uh, 93, yeah, 93, when academy football became more sort of prominent and more structured as it is, it became Huddersfield Towns Academy. And I stayed there until I was leaving school, 16, and then into like the old YTS scheme as it was. Um, but that's where I started to struggle. I think for me, as a young player, I was always, I always excelled. I was always the best in my age group, you know, scored a lot of goals and everything came quite easily. Um, but then that, that kind of moment there where you're playing against top players and you're coming up against players you haven't maybe come across before um, was a struggle. And then unfortunately, quite early, I broke my shoulder and I ended up having an operation on that. That ruled me out for a season and I never really regained any kind of fitness or for my second operation because the pin came loose in the shoulder. So when I was doing my rehab, I got injured again. And it's a similar story to what a lot of people have, you know, and never really got the chance really to get back into the groove of playing with those kind of players. So I, I left the club, I was 18 at the time, um, and joined Buxton Football Club, which at the time was very strange for me because I'd never heard of Buxton and they were... Huddersfield were in the Championship, Buxton were in the North Eastern Counties Premier. Six divisions difference, you know. Um, and it was my PT, uh, not my PT, my history teacher from school. He called me when I'd got released from Huddersfield and he called me up to school. And he said, look, you know, I've been tracking your career as, as you played through school and I know you've left Huddersfield Town and I'm the chairman of a football club, Buxton Football Club, when I was thinking, Buxton. Never heard of that, you know, but it's where the water comes from, it's Buxton Springs. And he took me over and, and I played there until I was 21. And, you know, it was fantastic. I loved it. Nice little town in the Peak District in Derbyshire. Great family club. You know, a lot of local players playing, welcomed me in. Great memories 
great memories of being there. Um, and interestingly enough, the Christmas just gone uh, when I was back home. I went to a game to watch them and this weekend they just secured promotion into the Conference North. They just won the league at the weekend. Um, so they're going now from kind of a semi-pro status into a three-quarter to full-time status, which is fantastic for the club and it's the highest they've been in a very, very long time. So great memories of a young kid playing there, but then going back as a fan now with my ex-history teacher, who's still the chairman or honorary chairman as he is now because he's a little bit older. Um, yeah, fantastic. There's something to be at there because it's something we discussed off camera, Sean, about players at that age, between that 18 to 21-year-old bracket, getting that game experience no matter whatever level. I suppose just being able to freely play, you know, for those two or three years was a new lease of life for yourself, you know, just fresh yeah. out the academy system. Absolutely. And when, you, you know, when you're young, you know, you don't realise at the time, but you're not, you're not very mature. You think you are, but you're not, you're not mature. You know, you don't understand the game as well as I do now as a coach. And I think it's the same for a lot of players. So yeah, there's a lot of pressure on yourself and you don't really know how to deal with that mentally, I think. And then being injured and seeing other guys playing and, you know, you're kind of falling behind from a development point of view. And then also the fitness element to it and being injured and doing rehab is, is not, it's not easy especially as a young kid, when you, you haven't quite made it, you're still fighting to try and make it to be a professional. So it's tough mentally. And like you say, it's key development years. And when you miss a lot of football, you, you fall so far behind. And there are so many good players that excel that even they don't make it as a professional. It's just, it's just very, very difficult. So, you know, at the time, it was, the rejection was quite difficult to take. But I dropped down. And like I say, I enjoyed three years of playing at books. And it was fantastic. Um, but when I got to 21, I kind of realised that football as a player, I'm not going to make this as a full-time career. So it was kind of like, do I pursue this at a semi-pro level and see where it goes? Or do I maybe move into the coaching side of it? And that's what I chose to do at, you know, at quite a young age. And was coaching more of a passion at the time, Sean? Or was it, as you just elaborated upon there, more of a, a way to stay involved within the game? Yeah, it was a way to stay involved. To be very honest with you, I could only ever see myself playing football. And, you know, I fought hard to get back to be fit and play and whatnot. And as I, that feeling of thinking, this isn't going to be a career for me, it was quite difficult. But I never really thought of the other elements involved in football. And it was my parents. It was my mum and dad. They, they forced me almost to go on the FA coaching course as it was. And I was 18 and... I didn't really know what it was and did I want to be a coach and see myself as a coach because I've used to being coached by these older guys and why would an 18 year old do a, a coaching license you know it wasn't the done thing back then um, but I did it because they kind of pushed me into it but I loved it it was great and I went back to my old primary school and did my hours that I needed to do to get the certification and kind of got the buzz of it there you know um, and then when I did finish playing at Buxton that was my first kind of step into living in in Dubai because my brother was here and my parents just said, look, go and spend some time with your brother, with your brother in Dubai and see what happens. And, and I did. And that led me on my first kind of first step of my coaching journey where I saw a little gap in the market where, you know, expat kids going to school, free time in, in the after school and parents quite affluent. There was a couple of other small academies here at the time. And I thought, well, why not? You know, so I've got some contacts, got a couple of contracts in schools, as you know, as it works now. And, um, and started a, a little coaching academy, which I ran for and coached in for four or five years with decent success, I would say, you know. It's quite the proven grounds to 
prove yourself as a young coach though being immersed in that Dubai youth football academy scene for four or five years mm. yeah it was, it was really interesting because like you go on this journey and you don't really see it coming it's not like you had a plan to go to Dubai and set up an academy it's just kind of organically happened but it was great like and you know as Dubai got more popular more kids came the academy grew and there's three or four other academies here and I got quite pally with the guys who ran them and we had little fixtures against each other and you know good relationships with the schools and the parents and it was a good life you know your early 20s living in the Middle East and small academy a few hundred kids every week you know it was it was quite a good uh, initiation into sort of coaching life but of course as you there's the bug it sort of takes hold of you and the addiction you know begins with coaching and with football as it is you want something more and you want to try and step onto that next level and that's something a decision that you ha- had to make and, and try and take the next step and you're speaking eloquently there of that move to Tromso northern norway but just wanted to get back to your point earlier on about working in football there was no real tangible goals and this is something i can attest to myself you're rather just doing it out of a sheer love of the game and kind of see where it brings you to yeah, that's it. That's it. It's like um, you don't realise at the time. It's only when you're older and you're reflecting you know, a little bit more mature and you know how to sort of process things. It's Football is since I was seven years old, since I went to my first training session, which I remember really well. It's just an addiction. You know, It's something that's in you. And I've tried a couple of times, short spells in my life, working career to step away from football. But I just can't do it because it's just in me. It just consumes me, you know. And making that move to Tromso, I mean, such a culture shock and such a change of scenery from sunny Dubai. And I remember even last time we met for a coffee, you were saying you even spoke a little bit of Norwegian yourself. But was that part of a more concerted approach to break into the pro game? Perhaps you didn't see the opportunities forthcoming in Dubai and you were targeting Norway and even Tromso as a place where you couldn't get that apprenticeship. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously through contacts that, that I got that job, but... um. I think moving to Dubai at a young age, it gave me the confidence to take risks. And I think you learn quite quickly, especially in football, and I'm sure it's the same in other um, you know, working environments, other industries, that you have to take risks and you have to step outside your comfort zone if you want to excel and you want to progress because there's so many people chasing the same thing as you. So it was all about seizing opportunities, you know, taking opportunities when they come. And that, that came about, and I thought, you know what why not I've done my stint in Dubai it's been a great learning curve I really enjoyed it but to get on that kind of professional ladder and start to develop let's go and it was such a polar opposite polar funny word but polar opposite of being in Dubai because you're going from you know Middle East desert sunshine to north of Norway inside the Arctic Circle you know four months of the year it's complete darkness so a completely different style of football different language different culture but something that was quite exciting at the same time. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, I've got friends still there now. Uh, one of the kids that I coach, I'm still in touch with him. He plays for the first team for Tromsø. Um, I even looked at the possibility of signing him when I was in Sweden recently. And, you know, great people, great culture. They love their sport in Scandinavia. Really, really passionate about it, both male and female sports. Um, I was welcomed into that town. And as I said to you, you know, like you spoke about there where we had a coffee, it wasn't a fully predominantly English speaking uh, town. So you had to adapt and learn and you learn and the kids took the mick out of you when you tried to speak Norwegian because it sounded stupid, but you had to do it. And it was a great experience and kind of started my 
love affair with uh, Scandinavia, I suppose. Give people a proper insight of that time in Tromso, Sean. You know, it's so, so close to the Arctic Circle. How many months of the year were you guys actually playing indoors? Uh, so pre-season would start in January and they had this thing called the Winter Serien, which is the Winter League. And that was part of your pre-season, you know, and that was indoors. So that would start in January and you would do that all the way up to Easter, which was obviously end of March, beginning of April. Then the season starts. So it's a summer league. So the snow is still around, but the sun's back and everybody's happy and the weather's not in the minus 30s anymore. And you play through the summer, you play up until May, June, you have a break for the, the summer holidays and then you come back in and then you obviously descend then into autumn and into winter and the season finishes sort of middle of October. And then you finish them because it's, you know, the sun has disappeared and the darkness has returned and it's miserable and it's cold and wet and snowing. Um, but then everybody switches to the, the winter sports then, you know, people are doing free skating and ice skating and going skiing and cross-country skiing and whatnot. And it's quite, a, it's quite interesting to see from an outsider, but Norwegians and Swedish, Scandinavians, they just adapt to the seasons and everybody knows what they're doing in each season. It just comes very naturally to them. But from an outsider, it was like the first year especially was like, what is this? I'd never witnessed anything that the sun not rising for four months of the year was just like unbelievable. But, you know, quite a novel as well, you know, because we've never experienced it before and you get the Northern Lights and see a different side of people and whatnot. But it was, it was fantastic. Like I, I loved it. And I've been back a couple of times to visit people. And I even played there as well. You know, I was coaching um, under 16s, under 18s. So I followed that that team I was with at Drumstyle. And, um but the guy who left the club for me to take the job, he became a manager in the third division. So I started playing for him. So I was playing and coaching and that was a fantastic time. I was 26, 27, 28, you know, and it was a great experience and that first real taste of academy football at the higher end because we had the under 18s and those players would then drip into the first team squad and I had a few players playing for like the under 18s Norwegian national team. So it was a good, really good introduction into that and, I felt like it was really successful. I think my the, the sort of most successful point I had there was we got invited to a tournament in Sweden, in Sundsvall, and it was the best under-18 teams uh, in Scandinavia that had been invited for this tournament, and we won it. And it was an annual tournament, and a team from Norway had never won it before. And I remember the first team manager calling me saying, like, you should be really um, proud of yourself for what you've done here because there's never been a team from the north of Norway actually win this tournament. So I can sort of look back really funny and it was really successful and was there anything that you would have noticed within your first few years there Sean from a player development point of view that you thought perhaps could be taken into player development here in Dubai that was missing during your time here it's, it's difficult to compare I think for me because the structure wasn't here then you know in, in Dubai it was very much like an extracurricular thing there wasn't the YFL and in these junior leagues that you have now. Um, you have academy football. I think uh, what was really nice in, in Norway was that they protect the kids. So wherever, whichever town you're born in, you can only play for the closest team until you're 16 years old. And that's still in, in play today in, in Norway and Sweden. So there's no real scouting of kids and kids having to move and parents being paid and all this kind of stuff that you find in England, you know. Um, so that was that was really nice. You know, they focus primarily on their education, but they put a lot of focus on sport and being healthy and being active. And that side of it, I think, would be really good in terms of 
not just player development, but character development and making kids more aware about health and whatnot, because I think that was something that was really lacking here years ago. I have to say, being back in Dubai now, it's a lot better than it was. It's more structured. It's more academy-like um, what we're used to than it was ever before. And tournaments that happen here now, like the MENA Cup was just on and the YFL and different leagues, even the school league is really well-structured now. So I think it's difficult to compare at the time, uh, definitely because they were just Dubai was new and everything was new and there wasn't the structure that, that they had in Norway. It's amazing all those experiences, Sean, would work together to basically make life come full circle for yourself, really, with a return to your boyhood club, Huddersfield Town, in the coaching capacity. Yeah, and I mean, that was fantastic. You know, when I, when I, when I left the club, I was really disappointed, obviously, as, as a player, because as a youngster and excelling in football, I just always envisaged myself playing Huddersfield Town. So to go back to the club as a coach was fantastic feeling. You know, Norway was great for a few years, um, but then I was just, I think I was at a point where I wanted to go home you know, and, and be around friends and family. Um, but to go back to my boyhood club was fantastic. And it was a good period for the club as well. We'd, we came out of League One into the Championship. We were in a really good place. Obviously, whilst I'd been away, we dropped down into League Two and struggled financially. So the club was in a really strong position uh, when I came back. But just to put the kit on again with Huddersfield Town Badge and be working with the players of the future, was uh, it was a great feeling. And I was working with in the foundation phase, so I kind of took a step back from the level I was at in Norway and I was with the under nines, tens and elevens for the first uh, year that I was there. Did some work with the 15s and 16s as well, but I was predominantly with the foundation phase. Um, it's interesting you bring it up. Um, Mick Reed, who would be a mentor of mine, who was my kind of lead coach at Huddersfield Town, he messaged me the other day and two of the kids that we brought in in the under nines uh, and had subsequently in under tens just signed professional contracts at Barnsley. They're 19 years old now. You know, these kids are six foot three, one's a centre-back, one's a centre-mid, and I haven't seen them since they were nine, ten years old, but it's, he messaged me and said, I thought you'd like to know that kids that we started on the on their playing career are now professionals at Barnsley, which is, yeah, it was a great feeling for them because they've done unbelievably well for themselves. Amazing. Um, we had Chris Casper on a few weeks ago, sporting director of South oh, really? yeah. yeah. He mentioned but it's those messages that stay by you. Those are the best messages ever to receive in the football. But um, it's just amazing to kind of see the swings and roundabouts just dissecting your career today, Sean, because not only did you return to Huddersfield, you ended up returning back to Dubai to work for the yeah. Sheikh this time. We speak about working yeah. for scrupulous owners and whatnot. You were working for one of the crown princes here in Dubai. And uh, this yeah. time it's an individual development coach at NAS. For people that aren't aware of, um, I suppose, could you bring them up to date with the range of facilities these guys have at NAS because they're absolutely splendid having spent some time there. So, Yeah, I mean, NAS, for, for people that don't know, I mean, Nan Al-Sheba Sports Complex is it's a, it's a private, privately owned sports complex for uh, Sheikh Hamdan. Um, but it's quite quickly over the last, well, eight years now, I, I came in 2013, quite quickly become known as one of the best training facilities in the world for top athletes, primarily football, but there are other athletes that go there, which we can obviously talk about. But in terms of facilities, it just has everything you might need. And that's why teams come for training camp. Of course, for any football club, the first thing is, is the pitch of quality. And it's a, you know, it's a FIFA standard five-star uh, football pitch, two of them, you know, for training on. But it's all the support services around it for strength and conditioning and analysis, recovery, uh, the gym, the testing you can do, the clinic that it has. Uh, underground changing rooms with saunas and steam rooms and 
medical medical rooms, etc. It basically has everything. So when a club comes from the Premier League or Serie A or La Liga or wherever they might come from, um, it's like a home from home or a, even better than home from home because they can plug in. They have all the facilities. They have all the support staff from the staff that work at NAS. Um, but of course, they bring all their own staff with them. Weather's perfect that time of year, you know, mid-season break, January to uh, to March when the teams come. And it's so private, it's so exclusive that they just come. They can stay at Maidan Hotel or wherever hotel they, they choose to, but Maidan Hotel is the closest. Again, five-star luxury hotel. Um, and they just get repeat business. We, I was lucky enough to work with some of our best teams in the world and best players in the world in that five-year period that I was there. Um, but again, that opportunity for me is going back to what I said before about, you know, it's taking risks and stepping outside your comfort zone and being back at Huddersfield was, was fantastic. But that kind of mentality in England is that if you haven't played at the highest level, then you can't coach at the highest level. And that old school kind of mentality still exists in a lot of clubs. And it was, I think, still quite prominent at Huddersfield for the people who were in charge of the academy at the time, completely different now. But at the time it was like that. And I knew that I could see my sort of future in 10 years and I would still be with the under-14s and the under-15s and I wanted to excel. So when I spoke to His Highness about what they wanted to do at the complex, he said, I want the best teams in the world to train here. I want the best players to come here for rehab and to train off-season, etc. Um, we don't charge them to come. We just want to promote Dubai as a place to come for athletes and that in you know, from a financial point of view, they get it back in terms of flights and hotels and all this kind of an exposure around the world. Um, and, and we did it, you know, and I was there at the beginning. Man United were the first sort of club to come under David Moyes. After that, it was Real Madrid, AC Milan, Senate St. Petersburg, Hamburg, Borussia Dortmund, uh, Jumbo, Hyundai, AIK Stockholm, uh, FC Copenhagen. I mean, it was just an endless amount of teams. We had international teams come, the OA national team trained with us. We had teams from Africa and Asia, all, all sorts of national teams. South Korea, they would all come and train with us if they were playing against the UAE or Saudi or Qatar. So the exposure was massive. And what came with that for me was relationships with clubs, trust with clubs. And I'd get phone calls. We're going to send this player out. He needs you know, a seven-day or 10-day camp or a two-week camp. Um, just come back from injury. Needs a break from the winter. Let him come out, get some sunshine. Can you train him? And... We used to put programs together, position specific, you know, periodize the week really well. Um, and it, it was fantastically successful for, for me and, and the guys that I worked with. Worked with Patrice Evra. I was working with him last week, actually, because he's getting ready for this Legends game uh, next month. But with Patrice Evra, since he was at Juventus, I've been working with him. Virgil van Dijk, uh, Robbie Keane, Luke Shaw, Adnan Yanazai, uh, Joshua Pescara. Just the list is kind of endless again with, with those players and I had a good relationship with them and still do with a lot of them. And um, the, the risk paid off, you know, leaving England and leaving English football was people perceived that as a risk. But for me, it got me a few more steps up the ladder and exposure to biggest clubs in the world and spending time with them one-to-one -one and seeing how they operate, how the coaching staff put sessions together, how they interact with players. I mean, Real Madrid, Galacticos, Ed Ronaldo, Bale, uh, Higuain, all these players, you know, so seeing them up close and, and personal and Paul Clement and as a coach and how Ancelotti was a manager, you know, and the differences between the managers that came in, the, the education I had from my job was just like, you couldn't put a value on it. 
And being there in the background, like almost a fly on the wall. I mean, there must have been a time there you were thinking, holy hell, you know, this work as an individual development coach, you know, I'm learning so much. You're just in the background, really, and you're when it comes to the guys you're executing. Did it ever strike you, perhaps, as a viable profession outside of first-team coaching? And first-team coaching is something which we'll speak upon. But was there kind of that argument in your head between the two jobs at any stage? I think for me, when I, when, I, when I reflect and I look back, I think I enjoyed it for what it was for that five-year period, but I missed football full-time. I missed coaching a squad. Um, it was a great learning curve. It was a really good insight into data, sports science and fitness and periodization of how you rehab a player and the levels that you work to and you know, looking at the training load of a team, for example, and looking at what their 100% is and then looking at a player coming back from injury and we're training him. 50%, 75%, up to 90%, because I don't think you can get up to 100% as an individual training. You can certainly do the distances and whatnot, but I think that extra 10% or the 10% you need to get you back to full fitness, you have to be training with the team, with the players and et cetera, and playing games, you know. Um, but to go back to the question, I think I enjoyed it for what it was, but it was just burning inside me that I wanted to, to coach. I wanted to be a first-team coach and with a squad and work with the same squad and, and take what I'd learned individually and be able to use that with players coming back from injury and rehabbing players or developing players in certain positions because really focused on individual position specific training so the drills we had was amazing and the players we worked with was great so that was something extra in the toolbox if you like but yeah I had a burning ambition to to go into it and it's a great job being an individual coach but when I look at some people online who are individual coaches and I don't know the value of it. It depends how you do it, but there are a lot of people who advertise themselves as these great individual coaches, but it's just all for sure. Like there's no substance to it. When I really, when I, when you really delve into it and look at what people are doing, there was one guy, English coach, he's a quite well-known individual coach, came to NAS with some players and I was stood with a guy who was, I don't know if he was his agent or his representative and, he was doing this session of cones everywhere and slalom poles and mannequins and stuff. And it looked brilliant, great setup or whatever. And he said to me, like, nudge me. And he said, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's a great individual session. And I was like, no, it's not. Because this guy's dribbling centre of the pitch in and out of poles around a mannequin and he's finishing. And I've watched him do that now for 30 minutes. And he's a right back. So for me, when does a right back do that? When does a right back in the centre of the pitch dribbling in and out of players and going around the centre half and smashing the ball in the bottom corner. I said, he's probably had more shots in the last 30 minutes than he has in the whole, whole of his career. Like, he was just... So, I think some individual coaches, it's a bit of a gimmick. They just make it look great and people warm to it. Um, some are very, very good. And I took real pride in, in what I did. I'm not saying I'm the best or I'm better than anybody else. I wouldn't be that, that arrogant. But I just think sometimes the ones who kind of shout the loudest with it probably are doing the best job you know I think that's the nature of the beast nature of the territory so to speak being in Dubai football as well but you know all in all you've served quite the apprenticeship between being an IDP coach working in different and various academy structures for what would be the next big break at AIK who in fact had spent mm. quite had spent quite a bit of a time at uh, NAS and I think that was quite a that was quite a courtship on their part Sean if I'm not mistaken it was two three years they were banging down your door yeah, I mean, 
I, yeah, when I when I think back, it's it was it was a courtship from from probably from both of us. But uh, they they first came over in two thousand and six fifteen two thousand fifteen. They came for camp. Um, at the, the the then team liaison is now the sports director. Um, and I was aware of AIK. I recognised the badge. Didn't know a whole a whole lot about it. But I remember them being in Europe in the nineties and stuff. And you watched you know UEFA Cup and European Cup as it was. And um, yeah, they came and they had a great camp and they were really grateful that they got to come to NAS. And like a lot of clubs, they invited me to go to a game in Sweden. So they flew me to Stockholm and I went to the big derby against Ugarden in Friends Arena, 50,000 people. And I was just blown away by it. And Stockholm as a city was fantastic. And they came the next year, same thing again. You know, it was really good. And you're getting to know the players now. And in the off season, some of the players would come over to Dubai and I'd work with them individually. So kind of building a relationship and good guys at the club. And, you know, I really do believe that, you know, as a coach or a player, not every club is for you. You have to find a club where you kind of, you see yourself in the club or the values that the club have. You see, you know, you recognise those values in yourself and there's a bit of a link there. And I would never take a job in football if I didn't think that kind of relationship was was right. I wouldn't take a job just for the sake of having a job, which I think we talked about before. Um and yeah, and the relationship grew and we talked about the possibilities of something in the future. And then 2019, 18 came, they won the gold. Um, assistant coach left to go and work with the under-21s and they gave him the call and they said, now's the time, we want you to come as assistant manager. And I was just like, yeah, it's time. It's time to come. And I was you know, I was blown away by it. It was such a good opportunity to go to such a big club and I knew the players and I knew the staff and I knew the country and uh, and the city and um, I was just really excited about it there was just no way I was going to say no to it you know and like I said done my time as the individual coach and managing the, the camps and whatnot and it was time to take that step and again step out of the comfort zone and and really grab with two hands what I really wanted. I'm really sure there's nothing in your life beforehand that could have prepared you if you're standing on a touchline of a Stockholm derby or an ladder of your boyhood Celtic as well with Parkhead no. during the Champions League qualifier but I mean, last time we spoke, um, you'd mentioned, you know, football management is like an addiction. And for people that aren't involved in football, it's so hard to kind of take, you know, take that statement with a pinch of salt. But really, I mean, what exactly for you is the draw with being on the touchline coaching football? I think it's really, it's so hard to put, in, put into words. I mean, you know, you love the sport anyway, but then when you've, trained with the players all week and you've come up with your tactical plan of how you want to try and beat your opponent and you stood on that touchline and you talk about Stockholm Derby against Gardens, 50,000 people there and in the north stand you have the AK fans with the balaclavas on and the flares and they're singing the songs and they're constantly chanting the atmosphere is just electric and the buzz that you get especially when you're winning we won every derby when I was there bar one I mean, the sense of joy anyway of winning the football game is is huge, but the satisfaction you get from planning a week, being really clever with the tactics, the way you speak to the players, little messages you send, little signals and set pieces, everything that kind of goes into it. And so many people working on it, when it, when it pays off and you win the elation and the excitement, it's just, it's, it's indescribable. Um, and you see what it's like for the fans, but to be there, on the touchline and really witness it with the players and celebrate with the players. It's just, it's unbelievable. It's, 
and that's and you want more of it because when you when you have that feeling the come down is is huge because the next day you wake up and you have to forget about it now and we've got to prepare for the next one and the next game might be away or a brew and it's no disrespect to them but they're a small club playing on artificial and might be seven thousand people there so it's difficult the come down is really hard so you crave you crave that next one european football like we we played um against Mar- maribor uh, at home and that was the best atmosphere i'd ever witnessed at a football game went to extra time and we lost on away goals unfortunately but unbelievable experience like the electric energy in the crowd is just and you, you just want it all the time and did you have moments where you were just stood on the touchline looking up at the crowd like, bloody hell? Because for me, football is just one of those passions. I think it's unique and it's standalone in of itself. And there's an old Dutch saying, success comes on foot, but it goes on horseback. You know, the, these, <laughs> moment, these moments, they're just so fleeting. And I think we're all guilty of it, you know, over various different levels of the football industry. Yeah, I mean, you know... It's, it's fantastic. Like the, the the feeling of the whole, of it all is just it's amazing. You and you you just crave it constant. Like you just want more and more of the, of the same. You know, it's uh, like I say, it's indescribable. And once you've had it, you you can't imagine not having it. You know, like I miss it now. You know, being on the touchline for a game, I really do miss it. And like you said before, you you can't prepare yourself for how you're going to feel. Then when you go into it, you. You get used to it and it becomes normal. But the big games, they really grab you, you know. And, you know, I was there through COVID and played with no supporters. The first game back with a full stadium was the derby. I put something on my uh, on my Twitter feed saying, like, football is back. The lengths that the supporters went to with the T-phone and the, the banners and the flares and stuff was just incredible. And you kind of got used to playing without fans. It was weird but you kind of got used to it and you looked at for the positives, like being able to communicate with the players easier when there wasn't 50,000 people screaming behind you, you know? But when they were back, the feeling inside you was like, it just relit the fire. And still being involved in the game now, of course, Sean, doing UEFA Pro. I mean, could you take mm-hmm. us a bit inside the structure of that course at the moment? I imagine there's quite a few site visits, networking now, analysing modern football. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing with the pro, it's all about preparing you for management. You know, you do your, your C license, your B and your A, and you work systems versus systems and coaching up to 11 v 11 and coach both teams, etc. But when you go into the pro, it's very much about the analytical side of it. Um, so, for example, one of the assignments is they give you a country to follow for the duration of your course. And you can you can put your top three requests in. I obviously chose Sweden because I knew people would go for Ireland, which would be a great one. Then people go for England and Italy, Spain, etc. All the big ones. So I said to my tutor, "Can I can I have Sweden?" Because we had Seb Larsson, Mickey Lustig, and Christopher Nordfeld in the squad. I had access to the staff in the with the senior team, and you follow them for two years, and you analyze every game, every squad, every substitution, every set piece, and you clip it, and you have to put it into a presentation, which I have now, which is about two hundred and fifty slides long with video and drawings, etc. It's huge and it's massively in depth but it's a really good uh, insight into different systems and how you, Sweden, for example, who play the same system all the time, 4-4-2, how they adapt to playing against the back three, a back four, or a 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1. So you're developing your knowledge of how to 
play against different systems, how to press high or how to be in a mid-block, low-block. That, that's fantastic. But it's a lot of work. I mean, if you imagine following a country for two years through Nations League, World Cup qualifiers and the Euros, a lot of games built up with the friendlies, etc. But then also on the other side of it, you, you look at contract management, um, you look at player scenarios, so dealing with players, dealing with alcoholism and um, drug addiction and all these kind of things. So they put you into scenarios and how you would deal with it. You talk with a psychologist about that. Psychologists come on the course and give you examples of clubs that they've worked out. So they don't go into details of names and specific clubs, but they tell you about different scenarios that they've, they've been in and how they've treated these players and how they've got them back on the pitch or maybe they haven't got back on the pitch and it's gone another way. Um, dealing with the media. So you do fake press conferences. Um, Luckily, I did a bit of media when I was at AIK. So they take that footage and they analyse it, look at what you could do better, how you could buy yourself time and how you can be clever with your answers. Um, so a lot of, yeah, preparing yourself for that. You, you, you meet with sports directors and chairmen and CEOs and they talk to you about how to structure a club, how to manage upwards as a head coach, because it's not just managing your staff and the players, it's managing the board or the sports director or the chairman. How do you get money out of him? How do you sign the players that you want? How do you get your philosophy into a club where maybe they have their own philosophy, et cetera? Dealing with being fired, how to get a job in football, how to get another job if you get fired, agents. So all these kind of things that are around the job of being a coach, they try to educate you and develop you in that side. And with all the learning and unlearning, which of course of that magnitude encompasses, Sean, I mean, what can we expect to see from yourself going forward in the future, perhaps? some considerations going forward for future long-term roles? For me, um, I was in my role as assistant coach for three years and I've always wanted to be a head coach because I think you look at like the experience that I've had and what, I've, you know, what I want to try and achieve in football, I want to be a head coach. But what I've learned as well is to not be in a rush you know, and to not set any kind of time scale to it. So I'm not going to say that I'm going to be head coach in three years or five years or whatever. It will happen when it happens. I'm not going to force it. Um, I would have happily been an assistant coach for another couple of years because I worked under two managers. You learn a lot about different managerial styles, how to deal with players, how to deal with you know, not being successful and nearly, nearly winning the league and not and how, how you regroup players after that because it's such a, a, such a disappointment. You look at systems that you've played and how to scout players, all, all the things that kind of just talked about. So for me now, it's about boxing off the pro, uh, reflecting on what has been for the last three years, keeping myself in football. So watching football, and doing bits of individual coaching and whatever kind of comes my way um, and planning how I would be a manager going into a club and preparing for that, you know, in the, in the foreseeable future. Um, I think, People talk a lot about philosophy and talk a lot about systems. But I think for me, it's like, have your key principles of how you want to play, but be very flexible about systems and whatnot. Don't be locked into that because I think if you go into a club, it's the classic analogy and you'll have heard it a lot, but if you go into a club saying, I'm going to play 4-3-3, well, what if you don't have the players for it? Are you adaptable enough and flexible enough to be able to play with a back three or a back five or whatever it might be? Because that can happen. And not everybody gets to go to a football club where you can buy all the players that you want and play the system that you want. But you can certainly be very clear in your principles of how you want to play football. And then the principles just fall into whichever system you play. And, and 
that for me is a big thing. So I'll be really clear on my principles of how I want to play it. And that will probably change. I have a presentation now if I was to go for an interview tomorrow at a club. I have a presentation of what system I would like to play and what my principles would be. But I might watch Man City versus Real Madrid tonight and it might change. Or I spend some time with a player or a club over the next few months and it might change again. But that's fine. You know, football evolves and we have to adapt and be flexible and stuff. And something that grabs me now might not grab me in a few months. But the key thing for me that I've learned, communication, huge. Communication is massive in a football club. That's manager to staff, you know, hierarchy to staff and how you communicate with your players, how much you communicate and what information you give them, how you look after the player or the person behind the player, massive. You know, football management really is about managing the player and the person. Um, professional footballers are good footballers by design or they wouldn't be there but it's how you manage them and look after them and get the best out of them. Because, you know, traditionally it was all about the club. They say now more these days, it's more about the name on the back than the badge on the front. So you have to be aware of that, get the best out of the individual for the benefit of the club. So that's tough. Um, and it's interesting being an assistant coach because you kind of have a different relationship with the players and the managers. So you can see how well he deals with situations and how well he doesn't maybe on some occasions and learn from that. Um they're the big things for me the communication and how you how you manage the players and then obviously be really clear on your principles and also trust you know with the staff I know I'm a, I know I'm a good coach to a certain degree but I'm not a sports scientist I'm not a fitness coach I'm not an analyst I'm not a goalkeeper coach it's not where I specialize so surround yourself with good people that you can trust who are great at their job and trust them to get on with it because I've seen both sides of that where Manager comes in, you get on with your job, you get on with your job, tell me what I need to know. But I've also seen the other side of the dictator who thinks he knows better than everybody and that causes problems with staff, you know. So it's just constantly learning. And um, while I have this break away from professional football, read, you know, read the UEFA reports, read the book that you sent me. I've just finished uh, the Barcelona way, uh, Damien Hughes, fantastic read about culture. What is culture? People talk about good culture in clubs, but what does it actually mean? What does it actually look like? Um, really interesting. And just keep developing. And, uh, you know, like I said to you before, don't put any timescales on it, because I think if I say I have to do this in two years, it doesn't happen, then I might walk away from it or go in a different direction. You never really know how close you are. So you just keep working, keep working away, keep networking and wait for the right opportunity to come. Some absolute goal there. And it's so reflective of the all-encompassing nature of the role, which it has evolved into, and plenty of parallels with a recent conversation that I had with Cody Royal about this. But, I mean, overall, Sean, it's been very, very enjoyable and insightful speaking to yourself. But from someone like you, who's had to start from scratch, you know, start from the bottom and go all the way up, what advice would you have for any other aspiring coaches looking to draw some inspiration from your journey? For me, I would say when I when I look back on my journey and when I talk to people about it, it's, you have to believe that you can do it. So self-belief is massive. You have to be prepared for the rejection. You have to be prepared for things not go your way. Uh, you have to be prepared for things not go your way in certain timescales. But self-belief is massive. Deal with, learn to deal with setback. Accept it. Learn from it. Learn from disappointment. Learn what you could have done different. Educate yourself. 100% you need to do that. You need to really educate yourself because a lot of people think they know everything in football and they think they're a great coach and they don't need education. And it's not true. 
you need to educate yourself. Um, you need to network. And most of all, you need to step outside your comfort zone. And that's cliche and it's easy to say, but what does it actually mean? Well, it means take risks. It means take that step from, like I did, England to Dubai. Take that step to Norway where they don't speak English and you don't know the culture. It's going to be freezing and you don't know what to expect, but it pays off. You know, trust your instincts as well. I think when I left Huddersfield was, like I said before, was a risk because I was at a professional club in England where everybody wants to work. I just didn't see myself making my way through the steps. So I thought I need to leave and I stepped out of football, but by working for Sheikh Hamdan at NAS, it got me exposed to so many people, got me my job at AIK and it's risk-taking. And people will say like, yeah, I'll take risks and I'm prepared to step out myself, outside my comfort zone. But are you really? Because you're only fooling yourself, you know? You have to be able to do it. And that's what I've done. And I'm not saying it's the perfect way or it's the best way or it's a great way and nobody else can beat it or whatever. It's just the way that it's worked out because I've taken those risks and I've worked hard and I've backed myself. And I now have to deal with not the failure or the rejection, but I had to leave AIK. It wasn't something I wanted to do or the manager wanted me to do, but the people above made that decision. And I could, you know, feel bad towards those people, but what I have to make sure I do is the next time I'm in a role like that, I have to make sure that I put myself in a position where no matter what, those people can't turn around and say, oh, when his contract expires, we're, we're going to move him on. So again, just have to look at yourself because that's what matters at the end of the day. Brilliant. Sean, really, really enjoyed this chat. I know we have enough content in the future <laughs> to get you on for round two. And hopefully you'll have some good news for us on the way. But um, hopefully yeah. you enjoyed this half as much as I did. No, it's been fantastic. Thank you again for getting me on and very nostalgic wandering down those roads and bringing back, you know, feelings and emotions of the sort of journey that I've been on. And it's great to go back down it. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks. Any mention of Italian 90s welcome in this parish? <laughs> yeah, brilliant. <laughs>